If you've been following along in this healing series, you know that community has been a recurring theme. And here's what I love about this conversation with Scott, is we didn't set out to talk about community. One thing I do with every guest is I make it clear that no matter what we may have in mind to talk about, we're always going to start off with prayer and invite God to take the conversation wherever he wants to take it. I thought that Scott and I were going to talk about something very different, but it became very clear about halfway through what the theme was. Community. But not just community. What Scott brings to the table is the sense that we often long for community. We often want community to be easy, but we actually may have a personal responsibility to step into community. There's a bit of a challenge here for us, and I hope you're willing to take that challenge because community is so important, not just to our healing, but to the healing of others. You're listening to episode 95 of the Where Did You See God podcast. Father God, I just want to thank you that you are God and you are good. And I just thank you for this opportunity to talk with Scott about whatever it is you want to have us talk about. We thank you that you can guide our words, you can guide our thoughts. And so we invite that now. We pray that you would take this conversation and make it what you want it to be. Mm-hmm. Point our minds in whatever direction they need to go, even if we weren't planning on going there. Protect our minds from holding to something we need to let go of. And in all this, we just pray that you are glorified because mm-hmm. we know you can do abundantly more in this conversation and wherever this conversation goes. So this time is yours and we thank you for it. All this we pray in your most holy and precious name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Paul. Oh, you're welcome. And thank you for being here. I'm really excited to talk and I'm really excited because I know very little about whatever we're going to talk about, right? Like, I don't know where this conversation is going to go. And it's becoming one of my favorite things to see how God works in these spaces. But before we jump in, one thing that I do to learn more about who I'm talking to, to it's, it's almost like a little improv game for me, a fun and simple and brief way for the guests to share who they are. I say improv because I make up some random prompt to do so. <laughs> so it used to be the simple, you're in an elevator and you're about to get off on the next floor. So you got no time to do this, but who are you? Here's the random one that popped in my head for you. I'm driving down the road and I'm going down, you know, we've got I-95 here in Virginia. So I'm driving down I-95 and I look and there's a billboard. It's got this picture of you on it and it's got some script. And that script is a little quick bio about who you are. Now I'm driving, mind you, I don't have a whole lot of time to read. So I look up and it tells me about who you are. What does your billboard say in such a way that it keeps my eyes on there just long enough that I don't get in an accident? <laughs> I hope it's a servant of Christ, if it was short. If it went a little further, then it would say Christian, husband, father, and pastor. I love it. It's good. I didn't crash. Everything's good. <laughs> yeah, I tried to keep it short because I tried to keep it short. I don't want to give you too much to read. So you went off the road. Although I suppose if you were on the road and it was frozen outside and you were stuck there for 15 hours, like That's was true. the case recently, then it's... you'd have plenty of time and might wish there was more on the billboard. So were you affected yeah. by that by chance? I was not, but I forget that now everybody knows about I-95. Yeah. because I'm in Washington state. I'm on the other side of the country. And even, even yeah. I was kind of glued to that story because oh, we, we had our ninth child in September. And so there's just this thought like, what if I was stuck in the van? With our nine children yeah. for 15 hours and my youngest and yeah. food and nursing and naps and gas and just heat even. So, yeah. yeah, I just I can't imagine what it was like. So fortunately, yeah, we weren't affected. Well, I'm really excited to talk because I don't know, I've really seen God show up in these conversations. And like I said, I love going into these kind of blind 
one of the ways that I've started jumping in is a very just broad and straightforward way. And we could see where the conversation goes. Sounds good. But when we first connected and I mentioned that we're focusing on the concept of healing. And as you've been thinking about this episode, as you've been thinking about healing itself, as you've been thinking about the topic, what is it that God's been putting on your heart? What's on your heart right now when we think about healing? Okay, so I guess I think personally of things that we're trying to heal from as a, a family ministry involves difficulties that you expect. And one of the ways that my wife and I have always encouraged each other is by reminders of the people in our church that are very dear to us, who are always there for us. And in you know almost 15 years of pastoral ministry, there's always this list of names to give. But actually, during this recent season, some of the names that we would say to each other, like, you know, this family, this family, they're always going to be with us. Some of those families left. Mm. And it, it was hurtful for us, for our children. Uh, and I'm not saying it's not critically of them or anything like that. It's not saying there's, you know, fault with them or anything. It's just but it was something we've taken personally and our children have struggled through. And so just trying to think like, wow, you know, who do we have besides Christ? Yeah. Even as you're saying that, it's making me think of some similar ways that we have been navigating. We've been part of our church almost from when it started around 2009 or so. And when it started, there were these core families that were kind of the planted roots were here and a lot of deep relationships were built. And it was a very community-focused approach to the church, approach to ministry, approach to living. So much so that when it's community-based, it's like if it's job-based, and if a job changes or a life changes, you know, somebody may leave. But if it's community-based, you get the sense that people are always going to be here. But then things did change. And over the years, we have had people that we thought were always going to be here that left. And it really does affect you in a specific way because it's, it is a loss, right? There is healing that is necessary when there is a loss, but it's almost like it hits in a unique way because the person isn't gone, but they're functionally <laughs> geographically gone. Mm -hmm. And even when somebody says, oh, we'll still stay in touch, we'll still hang out, like- It doesn't happen. Often it doesn't happen. And not even for bad reasons, just for life reasons. And you mentioned kids, like when you got kids, it's already hard enough mm -hmm. to have relationships. So tell me more about how y'all have been navigating that because I don't feel like, even based on the way you're talking, I don't feel like there is a quick fix that you're like, but then we realize this and now everything's good. No. So how have y'all been navigating that space that doesn't have a quick fix? Mm -hmm. So it helps us appreciate each other and think about the people that will always be in your life. You know, my wife and my children, and there are wonderful families in the church that are very dear to us. And the more that you go through with some of these people, then the deeper that relationship becomes. So you become more thankful for them, for the people that Christ has put in your life. And, and I think it's important to remember that because the body of Christ is called a body, these people are, you know, the hands and feet of Christ, so that this is how Christ ministers to us, or this is how Christ loves us. He's not here physically, you know, Christ doesn't sit on the couch with you or something like that, but he does, in a sense, sit on the couch with you or listen to you through his hands and feet that are part of the body of Christ, your church family. And it's interesting, something happened this past Sunday that's never happened before. We have membership meetings, and I generally tell people, hey, you know, make this decision prayerfully. If you need time, go home and think about whether you want to join the church or not, because we, I call us a family church because we do things as families, but also because we really are a family. Mm -hmm. And so if you join our church family, it's hurtful. If you leave, it's hurtful 
hurtful for you and it's hurtful for us. So we would actually rather people take more time and prayerfully consider whether they should join our church family so that they have made an informed decision uh, that they would stay longer than actually join the church for some period of time and then end up leaving. But I think because of recent things that happened over the season with COVID and people leaving that we never thought would leave, I emphasize this so strongly that we actually didn't have one single family that on that Sunday, they were like, we're going to go home, we're going to pray about it. And I was like, maybe yeah. I came on a little too strong <laughs> about that. But it was just kind of reflecting on how that does feel when you know there are people that you're really close with who leave. Because like you said, they didn't die. And so you know that for these reasons or Maybe you don't even know all the reasons, but they've chosen to go fellowship or call some other church their church family. And there's probably kind of a unique way as a pastor you feel it, because even though Mm -hmm. people in the church feel it as a pastor, inevitably you take it personally. You think, hey, I don't want to say my church. Obviously, this is Christ's church. But if you're an elder, you're in leadership, then there's that sense in which it's your church in a different way than the people in the congregation. And you can't help but just feel like kind of that you're being rejected by them, Mm -hmm. wondering if you've done something wrong. Even if people frequently say, hey, it's not you or it's not the preaching, or it's not this, or it's not that. But there's no way to really not be hurt somewhat by that. And so, you know, Katie, my wife, she sent me this email the other day, and it was really nice, very sweet. She said that she's noticed how much closer the two of us have become and how much we've grown in our marriage. And I think that's one positive consequence of some of the things that have happened as the church. I think it's helped my children recognize that some relationships last a long time, and some are only for a short season. Even when you go through, I said, I know you said you had two children, and how old are they? Well, I have three now. At the time, I had two. Yeah. I mean, so there's one that's about to turn nine, one that's about to turn three, and then one that is six and a half. Okay. So our our oldest is 14 down to, Mm -hmm. you know, the one that was a few months old. So you kind of do the math there. It's about every other year, about every other year, God gives us another child or something. Katie, my Uh, wife just, my wife just turned 40. So we don't know if this will be the last. And it's not a commentary on what other people should do, but it was just our, you know, you hear someone has nine kids and maybe you think they want to have a lot of kids. And I mean, we like having all the kids we have, but our conviction was just to kind of let God give us what he wanted to give us and right. have him build our family for us. You know, not to say others have to do that. But anyway, when you, you know your kids are getting older, you don't want to see them go through difficult things. But to be honest, you do want to see them go through difficult things. This is how they grow. This is God uses trials as much in their lives to sanctify and mature them as he does in our lives. And one of the nice things with trials with our children is they reveal, just like in Peter says, that trials reveal the sincerity of our faith, you know, your faith tested by fire. And so to watch your children go through things and see how they handle it, if they look to Christ or not, and and if they become, you know, bitter or resentful, not necessarily toward the Lord, although I suppose that could happen, but toward people who left, all these things are revelations of where our children are at spiritually. So it is really, obviously, you're not going to let your child do something and totally ruin their lives, but you do want to allow your children to go through difficult things, make mistakes to watch them learn and grow and shepherd them through that. Yeah. It reminds me of something that a friend of mine said. I can't remember the full context, so I could be wrong about this, but I think he was talking about a similar idea of as they had kids and as they were having to spend more time focusing on their kids, that and the combination of people transitioning out, moving from the community, they found it was hard to have robust friendships. (laughs) And especially when the kids are young, it can feel like all you're doing is diapers and tantrums. And, you know, you, you can feel like that was the sense. But I remember was being really struck by something he said, which was he thought about the ways that he was able to interact with his kids and the invitation that God was giving to love his kids. And he's like, I realized that in a way God had given me some new and beautiful friendships. The relationship that I can have with my kids doesn't have to simply be a parent raising a child, but there's this 
not just investment, but connection, growth, joy, happiness. Like there's something beautiful that can come from these relationships that I have with these tiny people that live in my house. And I just was really struck by that notion of understanding how God can connect people. And so when you have a house that's full of kids, like you got a lot of opportunities. And as those kids get older, that's something that we begin to notice as our kids have gotten older and they really are starting to develop their personalities. They're really starting to think on their own. And there is something really beautiful that comes from that, especially when you're like, oh, wow, we can actually connect on this thing in a real way versus I need to tell you to go pick up this or how to do that. Mm -hmm. Have you seen that in your home, a community building in a unique way within that? Yeah, one of the things I noticed was the relationship we have with our smallest children. It's kind of more of like a cuddly one than a talking one. You're not going to grab your right. two-year-old or three-year-old and have like this intimate conversation with them about, you know, deep theological truths. And often it's almost sillier, you know, than anything. But as our kids have gotten older, I've been able to appreciate the deeper conversations. And one of my sons, we went to this conference on the East Coast together and we flew out there, stayed five, six days and came back. And the thing I told Katie that I noticed was when we were out there, I felt like we were friends, which in our home, it feels more like a father-son relationship. But when it was really the two of us, he's my oldest son. And it felt like, wow, he's grown and I can see him and talk with him and have these nice conversations with him. It was a blessing. I'm looking forward to the times that my children do let me into their lives and share their hearts with me. My oldest daughter, one of the ways I'm trying to you know, love my wife is Christ loves the church because she's so busy is do some of the grocery shop or a lot of the grocery shopping going each week. Mm -hmm. And I've actually begun to enjoy these trips because I go with my oldest daughter who knows much better than I do what groceries our family needs. And so we drive like 35 or 40 minutes because it's a food co-op that we're part of. And these trips, have become very sweet to me because it gives me this time in the car with my daughter to ask her how she's doing and hope that she opens up with me. So I, I am really enjoying the deeper conversations and relationship with these kids. One of the other things too is our church, we generally do more things as families than being, we're more family integrated than segregated. And so just as an example, we generally worship as families or when we have camp, instead of like having youth camp, you know, we go to camp, families go to camp together. Yeah. Well, one of the nice things about that is, and that you'd kind of alluded to this earlier, is it has people of different ages interacting. And so if a church is pretty segregated, then there's kind of this view that like this age group's together, this age group's together, these older people are together, these children are together. But the way we have it, it's nice to see my children interacting, you know, with adults. And a lot of times adults enjoy seeing, you know, younger people and, and some of the teenagers often pick up children or seem to enjoy relationships with younger children. And so I just think that's a nice thing to see fostered in the church relationships that kind of breach those age barriers that yeah. might be common other places. Yeah. And it also pushes us to have to recognize and accept an actual reality versus how we understand the world. So how we understand the world is your capacity to have conversations and engage and bring something to the table increases with age, mm -hmm. which logically makes sense. You don't know anything. You have to learn the things. And then the more you learn, the more you can engage. Mm -hmm. So like you said, there are some levels of conversations we might not be able to have with someone who has never been to college, been to seminary, been to this, that, and the other, right? But the actual reality when it comes to spiritual things is what we see in scripture is so many moments where someone who didn't have the knowledge suddenly started speaking as though they had the knowledge. I think most notably of Peter when he was before the teachers of the law. He is just saying all these deep theological truths going through the scriptures and they're looking at him and saying, 
this is an uneducated person. Mm-hmm. How in the world is he talking like this? Well, he's talking like this because God can speak through, work through, mm-hmm. put in the minds of people anything he wants to do, mm-hmm. which this is a reality that we started tapping into a couple of years ago when we started to engage with YWAM and when we did a family DTS, Discipleship Training School, because the idea behind that was what could it look like to seek God as a family? Because the normal approach, you're right, is we'll do some stuff as a family, but then when it gets to the grown up stuff, we got to send the kids to like the Sunday school stuff mm-hmm. and give them the really simple things. And then we'll get into like the heftier stuff because there's no way the kids can understand this. Well, Jesus was the one who says, come with a faith like a child. You're speaking my language here. Very good. Right? There's some things that kids can understand that we can't because they haven't built up decades worth of other junk that we as adults often carry around. Misconceptions we've gathered, expectations we've put in place, perceptions we've developed. Kids have a higher capacity to see things as they are, even if they don't understand it. Whereas adults are so desirous to understand that it can blind them from actually seeing. Mm -hmm. We know this to be true because we could see it all around us all the time. Mm -hmm. And so that was something that really struck me. There are ways that we were able to engage with our kids on a spiritual level. There were spiritual things we were able to do, like go out and pray for people that in the past, I would have assumed this is an adult thing, but the kids ended up being more effective, more engaged than we were. Mm. (laughs) And then we come home and we start to think, well, how do we carry this out into our lives? How do we invite our kids into things that we're praying for? Instead of the adults go and pray about this big decision, how do we invite them to be a part of that process as well and walk them through it? Yeah. Well, okay. So for First Timothy four twelve, it's a familiar verse, but I'm not sure that people grasp fully what it's actually communicating and the and the weight of it. It's First Timothy four twelve. Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word and conduct and love and spirit and faith and purity. We kind of look at young people or children, and we make these classifications. You know, like child, young child, teenager, young adult, and then we assume because they are in this age group that they must behave associated with that age, and so then they're considerably lower expectations. You know, that's why teenagers or young adults can even commit incredibly wicked crimes and not be punished because we're able to say, well, this is still just a child or a minor. This is not an adult yet. And the Bible doesn't make these distinctions. And so part of having a biblical worldview versus, you know, a secular worldview is to look at the world through the pages of scripture, which can create paradigm shifts for us. If we're going to really be open to scripture and walk by faith, then that means trying to view the world through the pages of scripture as opposed to viewing it the way we might have viewed it for, you know, years. Or, or even decades. And that's not an easy thing to do because it can involve such a shift in our thinking or the way that we process the world around us. And that's one of those paradigm shifts that can happen when someone understands that the Bible doesn't encourage us to have these different classifications of ages. And this is one verse that really drives that home because Paul says, he says, let no one despise your youth, but then he actually says to be an example to believers. He doesn't say something like, well, you're just a child. Don't We're not going to expect very much of you. Don't worry about getting really serious about Christ or don't really worry about serving or ministering in the church until you're like, you know, 20 or 25, and then you got to go to seminary for years. And then at that point, once you're old enough, then you can finally start to do something worthwhile for the kingdom of God. Instead, he actually says to be an example and not even just to unbelievers. I mean, there's a way in which it's pretty easy for believers or believing children to be an example to unbelievers because you hope believing children are going to behave in in a way regarding their patience and kindness and love that can challenge or exhort the unbelievers, you know, through their behavior. But he actually says to be an example to other believers in these areas. He says in word, in conduct, 
in love, in spirit, in faith, and in purity. And so I try to share that with my children. I share that with the children in the church, you know, because we have the children sitting with us. And I've said, hey, we're not expecting you to wait 15 years until you start serving the kingdom of God. We believe that you can be an example in these areas at this time. And so if you set a higher bar for children, generally children don't have much trouble rising up to or sinking down to the bar that's set for them. And so if you treat them very childishly, and I understand the Bible says that foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but I think the Bible tells us that with the idea that we would strive to see that foolishness removed, that we would strive to see them mature and become more like Christ. Not That verse isn't there so that we say, oh, okay, they're foolish, let's just let them be foolish and remain that way the rest of their lives. The idea is they can be foolish, they need to be discipled, but they and then they can be wise. That foolishness can be replaced with wisdom. And so I, I just think it's something we've kind of been conditioned by the world to have very low expectations for children, which they have no problem reaching. But if we have higher expectations for them regarding their behavior, their service, their relationships, and I think that they can rise up to that, especially with you know the Holy Spirit's help. God isn't going to say these things except that he's also going to equip us or empower us to obey them through the Holy Spirit's ministry in our lives. Yeah. You know, what I love about this conversation is it really taps into a number of recurring themes, but in a different way. And so, you know, we're talking broadly about healing. And one thing that I've heard come up in multiple conversations is how often loneliness and isolation perpetuates the hardship that somebody wants to be healed from or perpetuates the pain if it's like a physical ailment or a disease or something like that. And the beauty and power that comes through community. Mm-hmm. Well said. You're hitting at a unique element of this. And this doesn't apply to everyone if somebody is single and live on their own. Like there could be elements of this that pulls in. But within the context of family, you know, you've shared a couple things. You know, one, you shared that as these core families that you thought were going to remain transitioned out, there was this pain, there is this loss and There was something to be healed from and also maybe things that existed before that needed healing that now maybe felt stifled because that support network, that Mm -hmm. spiritual family was diminishing, right? But in the midst of that, one day you and your wife stepped back and looked and said, wow, like our marriage is deeper now. There's a deepening of community between the two of you that started to form. And then we've been talking about the extended family and how easy it can be for us as people to isolate out ourselves. Like we'll do our familiar duties, but we'll then live in isolation within ourselves because I don't want my kids to see me sad or I don't want my kids to see me angry or they wouldn't understand. So I can't talk to them about it. Or And so within our own homes, we can feel alone, but we're pressing into this idea that God could actually work through our children, give them a capacity that is far beyond their age and bring joy in ways that we might not have expected. We're in the midst of a pandemic, right? We're in the midst of a season where a lot of people have lost connection with maybe their past support networks. And many people are finding themselves more in the presence of their families. And so I'd love to hear your thoughts on that idea of how God might bring healing from the community that he's built within our own home. Sure. So I I have two thoughts. One thing I just want to say, if people are listening to this, I've had to learn to navigate through this as a pastor of a church with a lot of families and a lot of children. Mm -hmm. People can come in 
and feel like they don't fit. We're almost all homeschooling families in my church, but I don't want to be known as the homeschooling church. We have a lot of children, but I don't want to be known as the church with a lot of children or the church with big families. Why? Because I don't think that's premier. I think premier is preaching Christ, preaching the gospel. That's how I want to be known, a church that's faithful to the word of God, a church that preaches the gospel and has expositional preaching Mm -hmm. and loves others, serves others. So people can come into the church, see all the children, see all the families, and then sort of feel like they don't fit. And it's like, what do we say to them? You know, what do you say to the couple that can't have children? Or what do you say to the woman who lost her husband? Or my mother lost her husband, my father, some months ago. And and how does my mom find her new place in the church? Well, what I would say when people come to the church and they don't have family, whether it's children, a spouse, parents, close friends, siblings, actually, here's the way I'd say it if I make it very simple. The more isolated a person is, the more that they need the church, because that is where God is going to provide those relationships like they need. So of course, I would miss my church family if I lost them, but I have nine children. I have my wife. My mother has been staying with us. Well, there's plenty of relationships in my life. I'm definitely not a lonely person. Mm-hmm. In fact, I probably sometimes might even <laughs> wish I had a little more uh, you know, alone time. But when you take a person who doesn't have all those relationships that I have, they actually need the church more than me because that's where the Lord is going to provide those relationships. Now, the second thing, when everything happened with COVID and not knowing at this time how deadly COVID was or wasn't, we shut down like most churches did. And that was difficult for people, understandably. And what, But one of the pieces of counsel that I gave was, hey, I know, I know you're at home and you're not getting out, but for those of you who are families take advantage of this time being at home. My associate pastor, who's incredible, he taught our midweek study last night and we were there and he just recovered from COVID. He had, like you'd expect, this two weeks stuck at home with his family. And he lives in the parsonage near the church and he was watching all these new families come into the church and so forth. And he's reflecting on that. But he said, what we did was, yeah, we were tired, we were sick, we were under the weather, but we were really trying to treasure that time that we had as a family without any interruptions, which as a pastor, your life is largely, you know, people coming into it regularly. Regularly, you sit down for a meal and then the next thing you know, someone texts you with a need or calls and we live right up from the church. And so it's really hard to have a lot of uninterrupted time as a family. And one of the things he said that I appreciated was he took advantage of this quarantine to really kind of pull his family to spend more time together. I mean, that's one of the things that I encouraged my church when they went through COVID was try to take advantage of this time that they had together as families. Nobody really likes it, but there is often a way that according to Romans 8, 28, God wants to work things together for good, even if they're harder for us to see. But one of the sad things, Paul, that I've encountered is I won't see people at church for a week or two or a few weeks, and then I follow up with them, and they basically tell me that they weren't coming to church because they were struggling. Mm. And that really grieves me because I think when you're struggling, you have almost more reason to go to church. Do you only go to church when you're joyful? Do you only go to see your church family when things are going well in your life? I would say you might not feel like going to church, but when you're struggling and hurting, that's when you need church even more because that's when God wants to, when we talk about God's grace being sufficient for us, one of God's graces is fellowship, mm-hmm. is our church family. And so it's when we're hurting or struggling that we go to church that God has someone there that he wants to speak to us through. I mean, how many times people have been struggling and said, you know, I don't, I didn't feel like going to church today, but I came. And then sure enough, this brother or sister in Christ came up to me and shared exactly what I needed to hear, or they listened really well. It's a 
very cyclical thing because what happens is you don't feel like going to church. You're sad or you want to isolate. You stay home. The situation gets worse. So you're more even more inclined to stay home. You've stayed home a week and then it becomes two weeks. It's even easier to stay at home. And so it's a real act of the will to push through that and say, you know, I don't feel like going to church today. I don't feel like going and putting on a happy face in front of people, but you need to push through that. And I would say, go to church and don't put on a happy face. If you're struggling, be transparent. And if someone says, how are you doing? That's the common human response. Someone says, how are you doing today? I'm fine. I'm good. And I don't think we consider that that's actually a a lie if we are not good and we say that we are good. The other day, my van was stolen. Hmm. I woke up and my wife said to me, did you let someone borrow our van or did you park it in a different place? And I said, no, I didn't. I said, it's not out front. And I just thought maybe you assume there's some explanation for this. You don't think your van has been stolen right in front of your house. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, it was stolen. We reported it to the police. And then an hour later, they called and said it was being used in these crimes in Portland, Oregon. We live about 40 minutes north. It it wasn't like a devastating thing. I mean, I'm not comparing that with, you know, people that have cancer or or lose children. But someone asked me, they said, like a little while after that, they said, how are you doing? I said, we're doing fine. And then I realized that's not true. I probably shouldn't say that. Mm. I'm kind of frustrated having to deal with this whole van situation and then just decided to tell them the truth. And so I would say, you know, when you go to church, when you're hurting and someone asks how you're doing, believe that God might want to use this person to be his hands and feet, to love you, to serve you, to help you through this situation. And recognize that in those times when you're not in the valley, but you're on the hilltop, when you go to church, that there's someone else in a valley and God might want to use you in that way mm. in someone else's life. So we're pretty much either going through trials and hoping others can serve and minister to us, or we're out of trials and we're planning to serve and be a blessing to others while they're going through trials. You know, mourn with those who mourn, weep with those who weep. God encourages us to be involved in each other's lives in that way. I'm with you. That is actually another thing that has continued to come out is the idea that God has designed us for community. He calls us to love God and love others, which means he's calling us to connection with him and connection with others. And I think you're right. We do have this default response of isolation when things are hard, and it will cause us to avoid whatever community structures we have in our lives, whether it's our family in our own home or our church family or some other entity. Again, we're talking about healing can come through community and we can sometimes be the ones stifling healing because we are avoiding the community. Now, that said, there are a lot of reasons why we will isolate ourselves and avoid community. And one of those, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, is so I agree with you. I And I'm guilty of this. I am prone to say I'm fine when I'm not. And I'm trying to get better at that. And I agree with you as well that there is something valuable, important about learning to step and walk in transparency and openness and vulnerability. And of course, it looks different in different places and in different ways, right? But that's a process that God's been inviting me into for the last few years. That being said, as you were talking, I was immediately reminded of a couple episodes that I've done over the past couple of years with people who actually one specific who explicitly said that they were not doing well and they were tired of saying they were fine. And then they started to be more open about, no, I'm actually I'm not fine. I'm not good. And it was not received well. Oh, <laughs> I, whoa. I didn't think you're going to go that direction. Right? That's tragic. Like, there are some contexts in which when that approach of like, I'm fine is perpetuated, when people are presenting themselves as doing good, when transparency comes in, people can have a hard time knowing what to do with it. And so I'd love to hear your thoughts on how we as a body, as a church body, as a body of believers, whether it's a part of a church or some other spiritual family, how we as believers can be better at creating a space where when somebody does say I'm not fine, they can be able to share and feel safe doing so. 
Mm-hmm. I've noticed that generally people are pretty receptive and interested in people who have been receptive to them and interested in them. So I'm not saying that, you know, it's a tit for tat type thing and you should invest in others so that they will invest in you. But I've noticed generally in relationships, we reap what we sow. There's the principle of reaping and sowing that has application in many areas of life. And one of those areas is relationships. If you are someone who has been a friend, you will generally find friends easier and people who are interested in you. If you've been a selfish, and it's not to say this isn't a commentary on that person you're describing it. That's a very unfortunate situation. I don't, I don't know who it is. But what I have noticed is there are people who have almost no relationship with the body of Christ. They're not active. They don't serve. And then something happens. They go through something and then they're like, you know, why isn't anyone noticing me or why isn't anyone interested in me? And one reason is people might not even know about it simply because this person hasn't been involved hasn't been active. Mm-hmm. And if I could be honest as a pastor, there are times I had no idea what was happening with someone simply because I never see them at this church, you know, and I don't have some supernatural or I don't have a superpower that just alerts. I'm not omniscient like God to know what's going on in people's lives. I have to be alerted to that too. And so one thing I would say is just strive to be an active, involved member of the body of Christ. And you will find, I believe, typically that God will meet you through those needs. One other thing to avoid is most people are pretty reasonable if someone with, you know, kind of regular trials in a person's life. But I hate to sound kind of harsh. I don't really know a better way to say it. But if you're Eeyore and every single time people know that you come around, you're going to be talking about yourself and your issues and your struggles. I've noticed that that causes people generally to kind of not be very interested in that person. There's, and then you kind of think, is your life really that bad all the time? I mean, it could be if you have a cancer or you've lost a loved one or you have perpetual pain that you're dealing with chronic pain, then it's very possible that literally every Sunday for a year or years, there could be something wrong with you. But what I found is there some people, and that's just kind of their default to kind of feel sorry for themselves, talk about their problems, their issues, their attention is always on themselves. And I really believe one of the vastest ways to be a miserable person is to keep our attention on ourselves. Whereas if we put our attention on others and what's going on with them, many times our problems can look a little smaller in perspective. I mean, I've definitely been feeling sorry for myself. I've had these days or weeks or months where I felt sorry for myself. And then God just showed me someone who had it like incredibly worse. And I suddenly felt incredibly better. My trials were put in perspective and it was like, I barely, I don't even know if I'd say that I have trials compared to this person. We've got a family in our church that their son drowned. Mm. We've got a young mother in our church who is very healthy and she learned that she had stage four cancer. And to see the way that these people have handled these trials has greatly encouraged me. And, and they're transparent. They share the hurt and the grief that they're going through. And when you, if you're part of this church and you become familiar with a person that lost a loved one or the person that has cancer, suddenly the problems in your life look much smaller than that, you know? But if you're not involved in the body of Christ, then you don't know any problems except your own. And suddenly your life seems miserable. And so that's just one other really good reason, which you're kind of saying has been the theme of this conversation seems to have been community and the importance of it. That's just one other nice benefit associated with community. And we and we know from COVID that depression skyrocketed mm-hmm. during the season of COVID. Well, why is that? Because God's word is true. And when we go against it, there are consequences. And I'm not saying the churches shouldn't have set, shut down. There can be legitimate reasons. We were one of those churches that, that shut down for a season. But why did we see so much depression and suicide on the rise? Because people were isolated. And like you said earlier, God has created us for community. He does want us involved in other people's lives and people involved in our lives. And when that's not the case, it has a very detrimental effect on us emotionally, mentally, spiritually, and even physically. So I heard a few things in there that I want to emphasize and pull out. 
you know, one that I could hear threaded through there is this idea of when we have a community, what does it look like to create a culture around what it looks like to love each other, hear each other, share with each other. And tied into that is also this discipleship element, right? So you had talked about someone who they feel like they're always in a hard situation and the way that they're communicating it out can sometimes be in an unhealthy way and or not be received well by others. And so what does it look like to have a culture and a discipleship approach that helps walk people through what it looks like to share? What is it that we're after? What is it that we're looking for? How do we come alongside each other? You know, yeah, it can be hard to know how to share sometimes, but if we're also not creating spaces in which that's demonstrated in healthy ways, then it's all the harder. Mm -hmm. Or if it's demonstrated in unhealthy ways, then it makes it even more hard. And so creating a culture around following Christ's lead of compassion and understanding, and but also how to, to spur each other on. To love and good works. Yeah. You know, there's this other piece that you mentioned around perception. And I know that for me in my life, that has been a valuable piece. There was a hefty hard season for several years that I was in. One of the things that God used was relationships that I had with others, friends, fellow church members, community members. It was almost like every time a hard thing happened to me, there would be someone else that I knew that was going through something harder. There's a thin line we got to tread here, and I want to be careful to name it specifically. The, the healthy piece of that is to be able to put our situation in perspective, kind of like you were mentioning, to be able to say, man, it is really tearing me up that this person said this hurtful thing to me. But I also know this friend of mine is going through cancer and that's a really hard situation. So I need to be mindful of how much I'm escalating my thing in my mind, understanding that there are some really significantly hard things out there. Now, the reason I want to be careful is because the dangerous place that we could fall, and I would often fall into this, is I would diminish or completely just toss away my experience because I can't complain because I don't have cancer. And I'm thinking specifically of a specific time in my life where that was actually the thing is I was in a really hard season, a really hard thing happened. Meanwhile, a friend of mine found out they had cancer and they were going through it. And so there's this line we tread of both having a right perspective of the scope that we allow things to have, the power that we allow things to have in our lives, these hardships, these challenges, what power are we allowing to give to us? Because if my friend could be resilient in the midst of cancer, then surely I could be resilient in the midst of a hard work situation. <laughs> mm -hmm. But at the same time, not invalidating what I'm going through. Mm -hmm. So we go in this tension, but the other end of that, what helped with that second piece is because the first piece helped me to like say, okay, this will not destroy me because people have gone through harder things. The piece that helped me to also validate what I was going through was having people around me that had gone through similar things that there is a safety to be able to process with. And not just to be able to process, but to be able to be open, to not have to like, okay, how can I word this in a way that they'll understand? Or how can I word this in a way that I don't sound too victim-y or needy? Or how can I word this in a way that is palatable? Like to have relationships in which I'm able to just be raw and say, this is how I'm feeling. This is what happened. Mm -hmm. And they understand it because they've gone through something similar. This is why support groups like Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous are so powerful for people because people can be themselves. They say their name. Hi, I am Paul. And then they share openly mm -hmm. because they know it will be received. And so right. there's this balance, right? To walk in the tension of knowing that the worst that we experience is never going to be so much that God can't carry us through it. 
but to also know that in this world, we will have trouble, Mm -hmm. that there will be hardships, that this world is broken and God is providing a way through it. This tension of doing this and really as I'm doing it, people can't see it, but I'm pointing at two different sides and then I'm like putting my hands in the middle. And every time I do that, it makes me think of the invitation to walk the straight path after Christ. So like seek first God's kingdom. That's ultimately the answer in all of this is how do we seek God in the midst of this tension? Yeah. One of the things you said that made me remember the situation in my life when I had pulled up to this gas station and this van pulled up and I saw this burn survivor get out and it was obvious this person had been severely burned. And then I watched that another burn survivor got out and another and another and this van was loaded with these burn survivors. And I had a friend that worked with burn survivors and I shared what happened and she said, yeah, that's absolutely common. And I said, what's common? She said, for burn survivors to be together, they always put them together because they've been through these incredibly traumatic experiences. I don't have any familiarity with being burned and how traumatic it is, but I believe she shared that generally the months or years following the accident or the burn is even worse, kind of like a PTSD situation. And they need to be in community with these other people who are like-minded, who have been through the same thing. And so, yeah, there are certain people that they've come up to this one time, this gentleman was talking to me at church about this very difficult situation he was going through with a child that was rebelling. And my children, I guess you could say they're not old enough yet to have rebelled in the kind of way that this person was discussing. I mean, maybe we'll have a rebellious child. I've seen many wonderful families, better parents than me who have had rebellious children. So it could happen to us, but it hadn't at this time. And then I saw a friend of mine who was walking in the church and I knew that he'd had a similar situation with his daughter and I motioned for him to come over. And it was this beautiful encounter between the two of them where I was just happy to be a bystander, just in the stands, kind of watching these two talk and minister to each other in a way that I never could have because I didn't have that same, just, you know, the way the burn survivor ministers to the other burn survivor. I couldn't have any sort of ministry in their life like they could to each other because of what they've been through that's so similar. And that is one of the other wonderful things the body of Christ affords is people who generally have been through something similar. I'll, I'll tell my church that. I'll say, don't ever tell someone I know what you're going through. I mean, unless you've been through the same thing. If someone lost a child, do not tell them about when your father died. If someone, their house burned down, don't tell them about how the other day you got this flat tire or your van was stolen. You need to have been through something like almost identical to be able to if you know one wife can talk about her husband committing adultery, then the other wife doesn't need to talk about how her husband was addicted to this video game and she felt like it was unfaithful to her. It's just not going to make the person feel better. But when someone really has been through the same thing, there is a beautiful thing that can take place spiritually when they're able to minister to each other. And again, that's found through the body of Christ, through the Christian community. Yeah. You know, it reminds me of something that I witnessed that leads me to a question that I want to ask. But I used to run a number of internship programs. And one of the things that I did as a part of that is I knew these are young adults in a really difficult season of their life, figuring out what am I going to do with the rest of my life? And then we're inviting them to a difficult space of urban ministry. And so I was like, I need to provide a spiritual touch point regularly for them. Mm -hmm. So I would every couple of weeks, you know, we would get together and I just we'd look for what God's been up to together. Right. And I can't tell you how many times someone would be sharing about this hard thing that they were going through or that they were processing. And I'd be sitting there and thinking about how just 30 minutes prior, their roommate was talking about the same hard thing, both of them sharing as though they had no one to talk to, as though they had never shared that with anyone. And I'm sitting there like, you share a room together. You are going through the same struggles, but you're not sharing in this together. And sometimes I'd be able to find a creative way to get them to talk to each other because what I realized is it's great that you're sharing with me and I will continue to offer that. 
but there is something beautiful that awaits you if you connect with the person that is in more direct community with you, that is living in the same home as you, that is sharing in the same sufferings, but y'all are isolating yourselves. And so I was struck by the fact that 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 even happened, right? Why is it that they didn't naturally end up realizing this together, that it took this mediator? And I was fine to serve in that role, but this is the question. This does happen a lot, that we will be in a struggle by ourselves. And then when we do finally share, we realize, oh my gosh, everybody, this person and this person, this person have been through it too. The episode that I'm editing now, it's the same deal. Someone who went through a miscarriage, she shared it. And all these women came up to her afterwards and said, I've never shared this with anyone, but I had a miscarriage too. So my question for you is this. If God is inviting us to healing through community, and if we have some communities available to us, whether it's family or friends or a church family, and if we often find ourselves not engaging that, pulling away from it, isolating, what could somebody do today to take a first step towards community? Good. So I'd kind of try to see what they have going on in their lives. If they're part of a church, how can they be more involved? And just one simple example, most churches offer something besides Sunday morning. Rare is the church where all they have is the Sunday morning worship service. And the reason I mention this is it's pretty hard to develop close relationships through just Sunday morning. Mm-hmm. In fact, and I'm not minimizing Sunday morning, but I'm a pastor. I love I love Sunday morning. I love people coming to Sunday morning. Can there be some very powerful, intimate exchanges after service or before service Sunday morning? Yes. However, I feel like you're probably shortchanging yourself if that's what the extent of your involvement in the church looks like is just Sunday morning. So are there home fellowships? Are there midweek Bible studies or things like that? Those generally kind of afford smaller groups, greater intimacy, look for something like that. And then the other thing is just, is there someone in your life that God would have you invite them out to coffee and just get to know them? Mm -hmm. I'm almost certain that you're going to find yourself being as blessed or more blessed than you hoped to bless this person. And so is there someone in your life that you know going through something or you would just like to get to know a little better that you can reach out to and say, hey, would you like to get together and have some coffee, get to know each other a little bit better or something like that. So just find some other ways to have some deeper relationships because generally, you know, Sunday morning, it's a lot of passing each other in the hallway or kind of standing up a quick handshake. Mm -hmm. It's not going to afford the depth that I think can really be reached when there's uh, relationships outside of just, you know, Sunday morning. Now, if someone's not even going to church at all, then that's one of the first things I would say was find a local church, pray where God would have you go, you know, bring people a meal. Our church has often has opportunities to sign up to bring people meals after they deliver a baby or they're going through something difficult. Mm-hmm. Yesterday, my associate pastor, we signed two cards to people that were suffering, write up a card or a letter, and you'll be surprised if you don't hear back from them and have them, you know, reach out to you and, and it allows you to reach a deeper relationship with mm-hmm. those people. Yeah. Yeah, it's like this notion of one of my pastors once said, you know, we think about churches the two hours a week, but there's a lot more than two hours in a week, and the church wasn't called to be a singular event per week. So mm-hmm. what does it look like to think of the church in terms of all those other hours, 160-something or whatever, however many there are? What can that look like to experience what God intended for the church through the rest of that time? Mm-hmm. Well, I feel like there's a lot more we could talk about, but I wanted to wrap up with two questions. So the first is this, if anybody wanted to connect with you or with some of what you're doing, what's the best way for them to do so? 
Sure. Thanks, Paul. Yeah. So my website, it's my name, scottlapierre.org. So S-C-O-T-T-L-A-P-I-E-R-R-E.org. That's the place people can find my books, my sermons, um, my social media. And there's a contact page there if anyone has any questions or if I could pray for them in any way, they can reach me through that contact page. I'd love to hear from them. I also have my YouTube channel, which is where I have my sermons and guest preaching and so forth. If you're looking to hear some expositional preaching and my books are on Amazon. I mean, you can see them on my website, but Amazon's probably the easiest place to find them. And so, yeah. And I also have a free gift. It's called uh, Seven Biblical Insights for Healthy, Joyful, Christ-Centered Marriages. It's not a lengthy read. It's a pretty short read, more like a pamphlet of just seven insights. I've written a couple marriage books, and these are just some of, some of the information pulled from that to encourage and challenge people. And that's a free gift that you can get from my website that I hope would be a blessing to your listeners. That's great. Thank you. Last, is there anything else in your heart, anything that God's putting on your mind that you want to share before we go? You know, Paul, I would just say I'm thankful for your ministry and the way you're reaching out to people and being able to come alongside in this in this small way and just reflecting on this conversation. I feel like if someone happened to tune in today, there was such a focus on community and relationships that maybe this could be the nudge that you've needed to kind of press in a little more in your relationships with others. Because we didn't come to this with any sort of agenda mm-hmm. and you just wanted to be led by the Spirit. And so I can kind of look back on this conversation and say, wow, that was the nail that was really driven home. And so if you were a listener, don't take for granted that God had you tune in today. I hope that you will receive the exhortation from him to grow in your relationship with others or grow deeper in the Christian community. You will walk, you will run, dance through the streets, shouting praise to the one. You're healed, you're clean. Go out, tell the people what you've seen. Revived in him, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25 says this, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now that passage was on the forefront of a lot of churches' minds over the last two years during the pandemic, because for many churches, they had to make a hard decision. Do we stay open or do we close? And many struggled with how to respond to this verse, not neglecting to meet together. How do we live out this verse if we're not allowed to meet together? How do we live out this verse if meeting together puts us at risk? How do we live out this verse if we are not physically in person? Now, there are a lot of different responses to this, right? For some people, they saw not meeting as a way of loving others, to love their neighbors by not putting them at risk. For others, they saw this as a challenge to say, no, we're called to meet together, and so we are going to still meet no matter what happens. And this right now is not the time for me to dive into which is right and which is wrong, but to say this, sometimes we'll take a passage like this and we'll miss the heart of it. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. One phrase that we see repeated in there is one another. There's a call to action for one another. Because the truth is this, often when we think about community and when we think about our own healing, we are thinking about ourselves. But we are actually called to serve one another, to love one another. And so this idea of community isn't just about what it brings to us, but who we can be for others, or more importantly, how God can use us to impact others. So when we think about how we engage community, whether we do or whether we don't, we need to think about not just the impact on ourselves, but what is the impact on others. Then we see this other piece, not neglecting to meet together. 
That is a very different phrase than just saying not meeting together. Because we look throughout scripture, there are moments where individuals who were honoring God weren't able to meet together, whether it was because they were in captivity or whether it was because they were sent on isolation. Sometimes meeting together is not an option. And that's not the issue. The issue is when we are neglecting community, when we are neglecting loving one another. But let's be honest, the last two years have been hard to know how to live out community. Depending on who you talk to, for some people, it's felt like community has been non-existent over the last two years. But I know many who feel like community has deepened. I think of the house churches that my church, East End Fellowship, runs. There are so many people that are engaged in robust house churches that for a long time weren't physically together, but were finding ways to stay connected, to still interact. And they actually found a deepening of their relationships, a deepening of their understanding of God, and a deepening of their understanding of the body. For some people, the pandemic actually deepened community. So what is it that we can take away from this? One, we know that God values community and he calls us to it. But the deeper question is, how are we engaging or not engaging community? How are we seeking or avoiding community? And what are we willing to do to live out the call to love one another, to stir up one another to love and good works, and to encourage one another? I want to emphasize that I know that it can be hard. I have personally often been in places where I felt like I didn't have the community that I needed and I longed for. And the efforts that I made to find it seemed to come up short. So if you're in that place, I totally get it. And I get how hearing this can be frustrating. So perhaps the prayer is this. We've talked in the past about praying and asking God for community. But if that hasn't happened for you, maybe the prayer is, God, is there something you're inviting me to do? to either welcome in community or to allow me to see community that may already be there. Because this was a part of what Scott shared too. Community may already exist around us, within our home, within our church, among our friends, and we might not be seeing it because of something within us. This can all sound like a broad sweep, but if God does desire us to be in community, and if he does call us to love one another, encourage one another, and stir each other up to good works, then there must be some way in our seasons of life to engage with community, even if physical proximity isn't possible, even if depth of relationship isn't there. And maybe the burden isn't on us to figure it out, but to be willing to step forward, to say to God, all right, God, where can I step next? And then to do it. Because who knows, even though you may be longing for community for your own healing, God may intend to use you for the healing of another. And the only way we can find out is we step into that space. We love others. And then we ask ourselves, where did you see God? Have you ever wanted to read Revelation but haven't known where to start? Or have you been afraid to read Revelation because of all the ways you've seen it misused? Or maybe you haven't even wanted to touch Revelation but feel like maybe you should since it's part of the Bible? Well, if you're in any of these positions or any other ones, I've got a resource for you. It's called A Journey Through Revelation for the person who doesn't want to read Revelation. And here's the thing. The hope for this resource is that it makes the exploration of who God is and what revelation can mean for you accessible, whatever you believe. And this will not be your normal revelation study. It's not going to dive into the historic representations of the imagery or expertly decipher the prophecies. The goal of this is not to tell you what revelation means. It's to explore what it can mean for you. Now, this thing is available for you right now in a few forms. One 
you could go to www.wheredidyouseegod.com revelation, and you can find a PDF for free, which you can read on your phone, on your device, or print out. But if you like something that's a little nicer looking, it is also available through Amazon on Kindle and in paperback form. And I prefer paperback, whether you print it or you get the one on Amazon, because this gives you a place to write some things out because you're going to want a place to write things out. Because I really do believe that God wants to speak to you through Revelation, whatever you feel about Revelation, whatever your experience and whatever you think about God. So if you're interested, get it for free, get it for a very, very, very low price. This is not about making money, but about us together exploring how we can see God in the midst of such a difficult and controversial book. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Where Did You See God podcast. And I would love for your stories to be a part of it as well. So there are a number of ways that you can do that. You can check out our Facebook page at Where Did You See God podcast. You can go to anchor.fm slash Where Did You See God, or you can leave a brief voice message at 804-372-3836. I would love to hear your stories. And if the stories you've heard have encouraged you, uh, think of someone else who could be encouraged as well and share it with them. The music you've been listening to is You'll Walk, You'll Run by Urban Doxology. They are a solid group and you will love listening to the rest of the music. So check them out. And as always, as you go through your day, ask yourself, where did you see God?